But my philosophy is very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, say something, do something, get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. Strength of solidarity. The strength of solidarity. Divided is our nation, combating and fighting hatred. The mission, should you choose to accept it, is fighting racist. Psychology is just a space where we run in our simulations. We load you up with the tools, then we plug you into the matrix. So have a seat on the couch, now tell me your situation. Take a look in the mirror, be honest, just who you facing. Marginalized as a youth, what challenges were you faced with? Feeling you wasn't equal, told that you wouldn't make it. Your idea isn't real, got you constantly trying to fake it. Hiding behind masks in the closet till you can't take it. Getting harder to Someone's choking you on the pavement Unspeakable violence attacking you cause you Asian Accomplices, we accomplish through collaboration Engaging, educating, evaluating one another Liberating the future of all our sisters and brothers Empowering, elevating all communities of color Strength and solidarity The strength and solidarity The Strength and Solidarity podcast is a conversational piece that invites scholars, community activists, leaders, artists, and entrepreneurs to discuss their work as accomplices in cultivating cross-racial ethnic solidarity. Hosted and produced by Pujamami Dana and Dr. Dana Demenari, our podcast team also includes our podcast interns, Alexis Rios and Petra Zadroga. The Strength and Solidarity podcast strives to engage, educate, evaluate, and empower communities of color one episode at a time. Our guest today features Dr. Jan E. Estiliado, who is an associate professor in the SIDI program at the California School of Professional Psychology at Alliance International University in the San Diego campus. Dr. Estiliado's research areas examine race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and gender identity in trauma therapy. Dr. Estrellado's scholarly interests connect multicultural psychology and trauma psychology with the goal of providing quantitative and qualitative evidence for effective, culturally informed supervision and training of graduate students. Dr. Estrellado was a leadership fellow with the Asian American Psychological Association and an alum of the Minority Fellowship Program with the American Psychological Association. Dr. Estrellado runs a private practice dedicated to trauma recovery and is also a consultant to the Avelica Program, a federally funded anti-violence program serving the La Jolla Band of Luiseno Indians. Hi, Dr. Jan. Thank you so much for being in our podcast today, Strength and Solidarity. We're really happy to have you here today. Really happy to be here with both of you. Thank you, Pooja. So we'd like to just begin, um, if you could tell us about your journey towards becoming a clinical psychologist. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. It's um, I, I like sharing the story because uh, it's a non-traditional kind of path uh, mm-hmm. towards psychology. And, uh, and so I, I hope that, uh, you know, for, for potential 
uh, psychologists, future psychologists, you know, sometimes we don't always see ourselves uh, in in the non-traditional path. We most frequently see a, a more traditional path. So um, I started out in um, counseling and uh, counselor education more specifically. And so uh, with that, that uh, program was at San Diego State called Community Based Block. I'm very proud to be uh, an alum of that program uh, because it prepared uh, people to serve diverse communities uh, who are from those communities. And we mm-hmm. sort of taught each other as students and colleagues, we taught each other how to work with uh, each other's communities, which I think was a really powerful um, experiential uh, educational opportunity. And so uh, after that program, uh, I went into student affairs. So I did residential life and uh, and I worked at the LGBT center uh, at UC San Diego for a number of years. And, you know, I was doing racial justice work there within a larger LGBTQ plus community. Uh, but what I saw were a lot of students who were struggling with mental health concerns. And as a student affairs professional, you are, our scope is, uh, is important, uh, but it's limited in terms of being able to address students who are struggling with mental health. And so uh, you know, maybe I think eight or nine years after I um, got my master's degree, I uh, went back to clinical psychology. So this is a second profession for me mm-hmm. and one that I think incorporates a lot of uh, my previous experiences with racial justice work and uh, and work with the queer and trans community. Uh, but it's it was a non-traditional one. You know, I was not a psych major. I was an ethnic studies and sociology uh, major. And, uh, and so I kind of came into psychology, not having a traditional kind of psych undergrad degree, previous uh, research experience, I had lots of professional uh, presentation experience, uh, but it was kind of a different one. So that's kind of where it led me to, uh, to clinical psychology. Nice. Were there any challenges along? I'm I'm sure there were. Yeah, you know, the, the biggest one that I think we talk a lot about in uh, the Asian American Psychological Association, especially with the Graduate Leadership Institute, yay, and the <laughs> Leadership Fellows Program, yay, that, um, you know, if we, one of the big challenges is that if you don't come from a, a an academic pedigree, mm. uh, where your, your um, mentors' names are well known, or that they're their research is specifically on Asian American psychology, uh, that it's kind of a, uh, it can be a challenge to find mm-hmm. your place, I think, mm-hmm. and to find pathways to, uh, to community and to leadership. And so that, I think that was probably one of the biggest uh, challenges was feeling like I, I had something to contribute, but not really knowing the path to do that. And okay. uh, I think my, my mentor is a very well-respected uh, trauma researcher, uh, Connie Dahlenberg. Uh, so I think she kind of helped create a path for me uh, in the trauma world, which was a, a, a very um, wonderful gift. And I I didn't have, uh, you know, the, the path that I also wanted, which was uh, to be with other Asian American psychologists. So it took me a, a little bit to get there, but I think I eventually got there. Yeah, because I, I know that it can be pretty exclusive, you know, if you right. don't if you don't know, you know, the big names in psychology, then yeah, you're kind of excluded from that club. Right. And, you know, many of us, I think, even if we are in those pathways, 
there are different reasons why it might be harder for us to to reach the leadership pipelines. You know, mm-hmm. like I would say, my queerness and transness is not something that's uh, that not my queerness and transness. Ooh, let me catch myself. Let me see how many times I catch myself today <laughs> for talking about <laughs> internalized oppression. Um, you know, that systemic homophobia and transphobia mm. um, would be barriers uh, to uh, to uh, you know, leadership or whatever it is that I was trying to find. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I think you're right, Donna, that there are, there are many barriers and some of them I think can be cumulative. Right. Uh, where we, we see so many of our colleagues who have so much to contribute to our field and so many important things to say, but feel like because they weren't mentored into it or because they didn't show up at the right meeting or they weren't in the right research lab uh, that that uh, they don't they don't know how to how to arrive or how they can arrive at some of these different places that we know about through some of our different commitments. No. Yeah, yeah. Now you mentioned internalized oppression, which is a great segue to you know plugging this awesome book. I don't know if it will be it can be seen. Yes, it can. Love this. By the way, I'm going <laughs> to need you know all three of your signature. Like, yeah, I, I want the autographs. Um, sure. uh, the book that you, um, uh, good friend Lou Felipe and Ate Janine, uh, Jenny uh, Celestial, um, Clinical Interventions for Internalized Depression. Like, this mm-hmm. is a much needed book, much, much needed, and about time that we have something like this. Well, thank you. I- we felt the same way and we were, uh, you know, talk, talk about sort of like, again, I feel like we should do like a, a ding, ding, ding or something for every time <laughs> internalized oppression comes up because, you know, Jeannie and I, when we first started thinking about this, uh, we had doubts, you know, one, the first reaction was surprise. Like why doesn't a book like this exist yet? And, you know, we, we have been big fans of uh, EJ David's work for a mm-hmm. long time and uh, and the part that we saw that we we were hoping to see was really how this looks in a clinical environment. You know, when when you when you are in that uh, the therapeutic session, when you're in a, a, a health provider session, you know how how might this actually look? And uh, you know, thankfully, uh, EJ was so supportive, and Sumi Okazaki has been very supportive of us being able to do this, but. Our first reaction was surprise. Mm-hmm. Why hasn't this been done yet? And then the second one was a uh, question mark. You know, are we are we really the ones to do it? Uh, and so I think that's uh, even in the, the the process of trying to identify how this book gets done and by whom. Uh, you know, we're still battling the same processes. I think that that uh, that we are writing about. Right. Uh, so the the yeah the process felt very kind of. Uh, congruent I think uh all throughout yeah and that is I I it's it seems like it's this lifelong battle that you have to Mm -hmm. constantly you know bring awareness to because it's so automatic it's so ingrained and automatic for many of us you know yeah you know I I was thinking about I was thinking about what I was going to share today and I had this memory that um that you both might relate to in some way um it's possible but I want I want to get your opinion on this. Mm-hmm. I had a memory from being 
I was like early elementary school age. Uh, I must have been like maybe like five or six. And uh, my dad, so my parents are immigrants from the Philippines. And my brother and I were uh, the first generation that were born and raised in the U.S. Mm. And we grew up in uh, in Northern California, in Sacramento, and we did not grow up around a lot of Filipino families. It was uh, mostly white families. And uh, it was a middle-class kind of um, upbringing. And I remember sitting at the dinner table with my dad, and he was eating with his hands. And up, probably up until about that age, I had also eaten with my hands. Like it was just kind of like what we did in our family. And as soon as I entered school, so I was probably like a year or two into school, I remember, I, f- I feel like I have some feelings about this, even as I'm about to say it. I remember not like poking fun at my dad, but like judging him mm. for eating with his hands. Like it be, it, and it was like, why would you eat with your hands? Even though it was something that I had at that young age grown up to do. Mm-hmm. And I remember the look on my dad's face. I think it was like embarrassment. Um, and, and like, so I think he started, I think he and my mom kind of had a quick conversation about it. And then he started eating with a fork. I almost never saw my dad eat with his hands after that. Wow. And, and interestingly, I had probably stopped eating with my hands, uh, you know, soon after also. And the reason this came up is because my daughter, who's seven, was eating with her hands. And I caught, I said, hey, you need to eat with a... F-. And I was like, ooh, maybe mm. that's not what I want to teach her, you know, or at least to teach her that there are options that are equally valid, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel emotional that's- talking about it because, yeah, it was, it's, I feel, you know, my dad and I don't have a great relationship and I do not like that I caused him that pain but that pain didn't start with me and it didn't start with him right um mm -hmm. i'm really glad that you shared that with us anna listeners so thank you so much one thing i like love about you is like from the first moment i saw you at aap is just how authentic and genuine you are and you just always keep it real with us and we need more people like that like this in the world in clinical and in academia. So just wanted to say that, but it, I'm, I've had a different kind of experience because I was born and raised in India. And, mm-hmm. y- you know, it, we have a lot in common within our cultures, the three of us, mm-hmm. that, you know, we do eat with our hands. And mm-hmm. it's very different when you eat with your hands and when you eat with a fork. The food doesn't <laughs> yes. taste the same. But right. the interesting thing is it was reversed in my home family because mm. my dad moved to the US when he was 20. So I've never mm-hmm. seen him actually eat with his hands. But mm-hmm. I've always eaten with my hands just because of like elders in my family and things like mm-hmm. that. Um it's so interesting that you mentioned this because I moved to the US when I was 23 for my masters in MFT and mm-hmm. I remember like while we were like while I was at home in in US like my dad had cooked something and I was eating with my hands and my dad is like you're going to college now here. You might want to think about eating with a fork and not eating with your hands. Mm. And, and I looked at him and I'm like, well, like, first I was like, what? Like, what just happened, right? And then I, I was obviously 23 then. So I mm-hmm. was like, no, I was like, I'm going to eat with my hand wherever I am. And if people have to look at me, they'll look at me. And, you know, um, that's what feels right to me. 
And Mm -hmm. the funny thing is, I don't just get that from my dad. I also get that from my brother who kind of, you know, says the same stuff to me, Mm -hmm. similar to like my father. But I'm so happy that, and you know, when you spoke about that, that it comes from somewhere, Mm-hmm. It also comes from, you know, that acculturation where you're being exposed to two different cultures and you're mm-hmm. trying to make your own and trying to figure yes. out like, you know, what, what you want to do. And back in that day, if you did eat at hand in college or in school, we all know what would have happened. Even if you wanted right. to, it's like you were protecting yourself, right? Yeah. right. Not to yeah. kind of deal with that. And yeah. I'm so happy that when you saw your daughter eat with her hands, you were like, hey, like I want like, to let her know that there are options out there and she can decide what she wants, which we would not really get in our generation of parenting. Just like not because not right. our, our, our family does it in different ways. But I think the beautiful thing about each generation is taking what we have from our family and then understanding right. how do we do this for our future generations or like, you know, our children, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Like I'm a uh, a big fan of different kinds of informed consent. You know, I talk about this with my supervisees. I supervise an ACT clinic on our campus, and um, you know, this this I feel like that with parenting. You know, it's like I don't think I I didn't know that I had choices. I just knew that I had feelings, and then I responded Mm -hmm. to them. You know, like I had the feeling of embarrassment watching my father do something that that I thought was wrong or I thought was less than or less civilized or whatever it was that I had at that early age. I mean, I was only six or seven, five, something like that. And I already had that very strong sense of like how we were different at home than we were, how we were at school. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the idea of something like informed consent in that case to me is like for my daughter say, Hey, look, this is where you know, she's, she's multiracial, right? She's uh, Filipino, Japanese, Native American and white. And so she has, you know, (laughs) different traditions to really draw from here. But I want her to know that some of her people will uh, have eaten with their hands and that's the way we do it. And, and that like, she can choose, you know, like she probably would get questions at school. You're right, Pooja, you know, even at Mm -hmm. elementary school uh, for, for some versions of eating with your hands, right? Sandwiches Mm -hmm. are fine, (laughs) but something like rice would not. Um, And so I, I love the idea that as as parents that our kids have different opportunities because we can talk to them about choices and about intention and context in a way that I don't think I got. Yeah, I, I, I can definitely relate to 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 that experience in terms of I don't I don't even know where it came from. And as a child, because I was what four, three or four years old when we left the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And um, we lived in Madro Marshall Islands. I don't know if anybody's familiar. Oh, you do! Awesome. Um, we lived there for several years. That's where my childhood was for the most mm-hmm. part. And and it, it 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 was just something that I realized. Um, and I don't know where it came from, but I realized that if I spoke only English, if I you know abandoned the language that I grew up with, which was Bisaya, mm. people will value me more. Mm-hmm. And that was reinforced. That was reinforced. Like um, minimizing my Filipino-ness, reinforce, mm. like, you know, like the way that people approach me, like, oh, you're so cute. You speak very good English. 
you know? Mm. So that reinforced like, oh, so, you know, having that less, uh, you know, um, root to uh, kind of have, you know, being further away from your culture of origin, you'll be more mm-hmm. valuable as a person. And that was, yeah, that was my, that's, that was the thing that I had as a kid, as a yes. kid. And, and you're right, Don. like, I don't think anyone had to tell me eating with your hands is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's just what I saw. And I, and I saw different kinds of, you're right, different kinds of rejection mm-hmm. of, of who I sort of more naturally was. And that, that happens around queerness and transness, certainly also, you know, and, and so I had lots of different um, messages that I think I tried to navigate the best way that I could without really having a school environment or a family environment or a, or a community environment to like talk about those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I think what, it, what ended up happening, you know, by the time I was certainly by the time I was a teenager was, wow, there are all kinds of things that are wrong with me that I have to try to hide or, or downplay or move away from, or, you know, mask in some way. And uh, so I'm I'm glad that we got to learn about my daily diaries here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really appreciate that though, you know? Um, I mean, we're, we're, we're being real, right? We're being real. And that's what makes this podcast different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, even earlier when you kind of shared that when I asked you that question, like, how did you become like a clinical psychologist? I liked how you said, you know, it wasn't a traditional route for me and it doesn't have to be a traditional route. And I think that's right. the issue, you know, with the field of academia that, oh, you need to mm-hmm. do this, you need to do that. And it's like, no, like there's a different path for everyone. And we want to embrace that difference. And I think, honestly, those differences, even though with the ways our identities intersect, it's caused a lot of internalized oppression or like, you know, things we've had to deal with. But I also truly believe that that's our superpower compared to, you know, other 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 others in the field or like things like that. I actually Absolutely. wanted to do um, pick your brain a little bit because I was reading E.J. Davids, one of his 10,000 million articles that he's written. Because <laughs> uh, <clears throat> in one of his articles, he mentioned using the term appropriated racial oppression as opposed to internalized oppression. Are you familiar with that? Uh, somewhat. So uh, I've just started reading about this myself uh, mm-hmm. in the last couple of years. And uh, so I'm, I'm more familiar with the term. I think there are some, well, let me say sort of about language broadly, you know, and I think like queerness and transness have, have really taught me valuable lessons about the power of language. Right. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so I feel like as soon as I came out when I was, I don't know, 20 years old in like 1998 or 99, somewhere around there, as soon as I came out, I was already outdated, <laughs> you know, in terms of like, I think I identified as a lesbian and, you know, and then I'm, my language to describe myself has changed over the years. And so mm-hmm. I feel like queerness and transness gives us great, mo- give us great models for, um, for how language changes and needs to evolve over time. 
So that's kind of my first thought is like, mm. you know, I'm always happy to consider other ways of describing particular experiences or constructs because we get better and better at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so that's my general take. But I mean, you know, more specifically, appropriate racial oppression seems to kind of have a um, uh, maybe a wider scope that internalized oppression alone might cover. Mm-hmm. You know, I was reading some work by um, Versi and colleagues in 2019 about moving away from internalized oppression and, and towards appropriate racial mm-hmm. oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like the idea that people uh people who experience oppression might respond in ways that seem like they might be about internalized oppression but might actually be more adaptive you know something like code switching different kinds of code switching yep and i appreciate that thought because i think that's true you know i don't i don't i don't know that it would be um accurate uh or effective even to say that my evaluation of someone else's behavior is bad, you know, because Mm -hmm. it's always going to depend. It's always going to be in context. Right. Right. Uh, So I appreciate the term for that reason. Uh, In in that same article that I was reading uh, from Bercy and colleagues, they also talked about the impact of racism on white people and, uh, you know, just how we would look at the impact of sexism on men, et cetera, that, uh, you know, there's, there's this whole other, um, you know, dimension to the consequence of racism that we do need to to look at, uh, which I appreciate. It's not the particular focus of our book, but I I like I, both are needed, right? Both mm-hmm. the impact mm-hmm. on people who experience oppression and the people who uh, who benefit uh, from a particular power dynamic. Right, right. Well, thank you, thank you for that. I appreciate that perspective. Absolutely. Okay, so the other ding 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 we need to do is how many times can I say absolutely? I, think like <laughs> I love maybe it. Three or four times. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't I think, even paying attention to that. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> no. I noticed it immediately. I was like, oh, I'm, I think I'm going to say that a lot. <laughs> you, um, Dr. Jan, you're allowed to say whatever you want. You know. So, oh, yeah, you, you are. <laughs> ding 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 can be how many ever times? <laughs> I agree. I agree. Thank you. We're here to have fun. I could talk about this. I I I did check my calendar. And say, is it only an hour? Because I really feel like I could talk about this for a long time. We don't have more than an hour. We can but if I you was, want to. No, no, no. It's okay. It's okay. Like I, you know, but I was like, oh my gosh, I really feel like this is so interesting to me, uh, <clears throat> and hopefully interesting to to your listeners. That uh, you yeah. know, it'd be fun to talk about. Yeah. No longer at some point that learning yeah. can be fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah especially when you know you are using different platforms to kind of do that and also like being thoughtful and intentional about the way you're delivering that message right even through your book as soon as mm-hmm. it came out dr donna also reminded me that the next conference we have i'm also going to bring my copy so i can also get a signed copy so thank you and <laughs> oh, um that's awesome thank you i'm of course and i'm the ta for my intercultural awareness development class and i actually recommended this book to my professor because you know something that i've noticed in my mft program which i did at the same school and in my phd program where mm-hmm 
much of the literature is kind of outdated and mm-hmm. you know we 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 need to keep up with what what is happening in the world right now just mm-hmm. globally right. and also if we're talking about communities of color i think it's also important to understand teaching that from a person's of color's perspective and bringing those different nuances that come with that so i just wanted to say that I've, we've incorporated into our curriculum at school and um yeah that's awesome i love hearing that puja and you know i there's there's so m- there are so many resources that are coming out now that do you feel more updated, more relevant? You know, like I love uh, hearing about uh, the more recent trends with racial trauma, which is something that I'm also very interested in. And then we have models for what I think m- many of us knew in some of our lived experiences, but to see academia kind of catching up um, feels uh, feels like what our graduate students are learning is hopefully more relevant mm-hmm. to what is true for them mm-hmm. uh, and for the people for whom they will work, with whom they'll work as future psychologists and, and you know, mental health practitioners. And, you know, it's it looks bad on our profession when uh, the standard for our training is, is outdated, especially mm-hmm. around multicultural issues. And so I think, you know, for uh, for faculty, uh, to stay updated because there's so, there are so many good things coming out right now that it's, it's an exciting time in our field. And I think our students are responding to that and seeing themselves more in more of the curriculum. Yeah, I quite agree with that. Can I take a moment? I think we all have alliant ties in, in this Zoom room right now. Ooh, yes, let's <laughs> discuss. Because I graduated from Alliance in Fresno, the Fresno campus. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's where I got my, my PhD. And Pooja is currently in was San Francisco, Pooja? Yeah, I, I did my MFT and currently in my third year. Yeah. In my PhD. Yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah. So I graduated from the San Diego PhD program and mm. now teach in the San Diego Society program. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. So well, I came, came back. <laughs> your students are definitely very lucky to have you. That's very kind, yeah. my friend. Thank you. Oh, yeah. anytime, Kaibigan, anytime. Yeah. <laughs> students students, and um, your supervisees also. Thank oh, you that's so right. Much. Yes. Yes. Also, I'll have yeah. to I'll have to file that away in the I have a I have an actual feel-good file uh, <laughs> in my email because some days I need it. So I'm gonna file oh, this yeah. away in my, my mental feel-good <laughs> file. Thank you. You, you definitely need to. I know what you mean. I, I have I have a journal <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, I do. I know I'm going to need it someday. And I, and I do. I pull it out at least a few times a year where I'm like, you know what, this is, oh. I am not feeling it today. What's going to help me like move through the situation? It's like, oh, I need reminders. <laughs> yeah. Listen to the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> As a plug. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Um, so Dr. Jan, we know you've done like, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We, we know you've done a lot of work on, um, you know, the reservations and we'd kindly like you to share with our listeners, you know, like how did that began and what did some of your, what does some of your collaboration there look like? Sure. So, um, I work for the La Jolla band of Luisenia Indians and, uh, they are, um, in, 
Southern California, uh, between like North County, San Diego and Riverside County. And um, <clears throat> that work was somewhat happenstance. And, and I am so grateful for, you know, sometimes just how things work out. Um, I was asked to do a presentation for the Indian Health Clinic um, on working with LGBTQ young people. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it really kind of strengthened a relationship with um, Wendy Schlater, uh, who's the uh, chairwoman currently of their tribal council and also the director of the Avelica program. And the Avelica program is a federally funded uh, anti-violence program uh, through the Office for Victims of Crime uh, to uh, to protect Native women and children. And I think the the idea is really that in order to do that, to accomplish that goal, uh, one would need to um, heal the whole community. Mm-hmm. And so the model that we use there is uh, by providing uh, services on site, mental health services on site. And, uh, you know, I, I am very aware that, that my role there, uh, is, is, you know, that I, I, I work for the, for Avelica through the, you know, with the tribe and that my, my work there is like, you know, not, there's a lot of unlearning and relearning that I've had to do, I think, working there and trying to be as effective as I can be there as a person who's not from their community. Mm -hmm. Uh, And who, you know, again, it's very clear to me how much of our training uh, has been helpful in some ways and also very limiting in other ways. And it's a, and uh, it's a chronic uh, exercise in relearning and unlearning. Uh, and so, uh, I'm really grateful for my, um, for the opportunity that Wendy and the Abelica staff have given me to, to be there and work with their community. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like once you start working with communities who are outside of that, you know, cishet Euro, you know, community, a lot of our training is very limited. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, I think that was the fourth time. Um, <laughs> there it is. Uh, yes. And I think that's, you know, like hopefully, uh, I, I could say with great certainty that if I wasn't doing what it is that they've asked me to do, I wouldn't be there anymore. And so, mm-hmm. so me still being able to be there tells me that I'm ho- being more helpful than not. Yeah. And uh, that there are so many places where we can uh, do things differently, but our field holds really, really tightly, uh, you know, to certain standards and quote unquote standards and ways of being that, right. um, that aren't universal. Right. You know, that, that we, that many of our students, I think, are asked to accept as universal. They're just not universal. Right. You know, one, one of the best examples of that for me is, you know, I cognitively know that everyone's relationship to their family is contextual and culturally informed, et cetera. I know that, you know, that's true for me as well. And yet, you know, I think 
the concept of like boundaries, let's say, is different mm-hmm. if the frame is I am not myself unless I am with my family. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so like boundaries look different in that in that uh, framework than uh, than it would where it's like you know self first and then relationships or and then family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a very different way of, you know, like if you're going to do like an assertiveness intervention (laughs) and and you're only using that one frame that we've all been taught in graduate school, which is a very sort of individualistic (laughs) one, right? then we will fall flat on our face because we're using the wrong frame. So I'm Mm -hmm. not saying like every group uses that, every native group uses that frame, not at all. I'm just saying that, that there are groups that will have a different uh, conceptualization of self and family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're not really taught how to adapt what we do, I think, uh, to, to those kinds of contexts. Yeah, you're absolutely, absolutely right. There it is. <laughs> yes, it's contagious. It's contagious. <laughs> but, you know, I also think it um, really also speaks to our presidential theme of the task force, like what you're doing at the reservation and Mm -hmm. what you do outside of the reservation too, where how can we um, increase cross-racial ethnic solidarity and fight racism and, you know, be better accomplices. And Mm -hmm. that's exactly a beautiful example to show that doing work just doesn't start with your own community but you also right. need to be an accomplice for other communities of color, other marginalized communities, and how can you show up and be there for them? So I'm really happy that you shared that and that you're doing that. And um, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Pooja. Can, can I add something there? Because you sparked uh, of a, course. A, a thought. Uh, so one of the things that I've really, and you know, I was working at Avelica while I was also working on the book, and one of the things that I've, I think was really impactful for me um, while working there was like my own sense of like loss around my own indigeneity, you know, and, and that, uh, you know, colonization has, has taken many, many things from many, many people around the world. And, but one that I hadn't really sort of emotionally uh, accessed was that I don't, you know, my last name isn't really even my last name, you know, and that, uh, there, there is a whole world that I don't know about. I'm feeling emotional about this. Um, that was taken from me, the opportunity, you know, and, and thinking about this in the context of like being a queer and trans person, like there is a history there. I am sure that I do not know. And I don't have access to, uh, because of multiple uh uh instances of colonization you know so i think that that's part of the you know when you talk about like uh cross-racial solidarity it's that our histories are tied together in one way shape or form and uh and that when we move beyond these models that we've been taught about how things quote-unquote should be uh that we find these connections that are really powerful and impactful and I hope that when people do find whatever path they they are supposed to find uh, in terms of like how moving beyond uh, internalized oppression and moving towards, you know, liberation and liberation focused models that 
that we get to find that. And I, I think cross-racial solidarity is necessary in order to do that. Um, I, I can't, it, it cannot happen in a vacuum. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm really grateful that you shared that and please share whatever you want to share because um, <laughs> that's, the, you're absolutely right. And, you know, as I think something we all have understood just in our own different subjective ways as a student of color, navigating these white spaces we constantly feel that way right? that we're learning something that's been taken from our cultures or been thought in a different way and we're just supposed to sit there and it's really hard and yeah. um but but even within that history there's a lot of like commonality within that history so it's also important to be able to understand that for each other and you know within our communities and you know I know you've done a lot of research in the field for like graduate students of color navigating predominantly white spaces and the nuances that come with that and you know just in my many years of education um, I don't believe graduate programs prepare BIPOC students for the power dynamics that come into play in clinical supervision and how do we navigate these nuances so could you kindly speak on what does culturally informed supervision and training for graduate students, what should they really look like or what can they look like? Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I, I, um, I think the chapter that I wrote with uh, Jeannie Celestial uh, in the internalized depression book uh, really affirmed for me that uh, not only can we be doing much better, which I think we, most of us could probably acknowledge is true, but really thinking about what some of the models are that might help us do this better. And uh, one of them is, uh, and I, so I teach the supervision seminar in my program, which is like, it's, it's definitely in the top two classes that I love to teach. It's, it's really fun for me. And I get to teach it every semester. So I, I feel like I get lots of good practice at, at um, learning and relearning this with students every semester, which is supervisors, you know, we, we, there are so many steps to becoming a clinical psychologist supervisor that I think by the time many of us get there, we somehow feel like we've arrived, which is true in some ways, you know, but I think in other ways, uh, the, the model for supervision in the psychology field is that somehow supervisors should not be continuing uh, their own sort of like self-awareness journey. And, you know, that, that I think as we get reinforced for having different kinds of power as we move throughout our careers, that it probably becomes um, less common practice to really own our mistakes and really sort of acknowledge our missteps or, you know, really kind of acknowledge that our student bodies will always will t will always tend to be uh will tend to be more diverse and will bring more ideas than i will have as a supervisor um you know and uh so i think there are there are many opportunities for supervisors to change their practice and i hope that the first way for most supervisors is going to be wow let me be more real with myself and with my supervisees about my mistakes and about my limitations as a culturally responsive person, because 
that work, as we know, it's inevitable that we're going to make mistakes. So when supervisors aren't able to model how to own a misstep or how to model that uh, their supervisee is bringing up something that maybe they haven't thought of before or that supervisors aren't always right, you know? I think if if we can flex our model for how supervisors function then I think our supervisors will take our cues from that and then be able to do that when they are in their professional practice of psychology. So, you know, it's not uncommon for me to say during my own group supervision, you know what, I think I made a mistake there. Let me see if I can, let me see if I can move back a little bit and think this through, or I will, uh, I will, try to give my students a window into my mind and say, you know, I'm not trying to answer that because on the one hand this, and on the other hand that. And, and so maybe the answer is maybe I need to get consultation and get feedback from someone who's got more expertise in this area than I do. So I think it's about sort of creating a process uh, where we can, we can uh, not only make mistakes, but learn from our mistakes mm-hmm. uh, and role model what we want our students to be doing, which is the ethical practice of like, hey, I I made a misstep here. Let me see if I can make it right. Yeah. To be yeah. to to have that um space to own it and like yeah. you said, make it right. Because mm-hmm. that's a human thing to do. Yeah. And I'm so happy okay. you said that. No, go ahead. Oh, just really quick. Is it going to be quick? I don't know. That might... <laughs> just go ahead. Um, the other thing that I'm hoping supervisors do is I think we often wait for supervisees to bring up hard conversations, particularly around things like race or things like bias, uh, you know, or sexism, whatever. Like, and and my my wish for supervisors, and this is how I try to teach my students and train my students in my clinic, is it's our job to open the door always because we are, we are in the, uh, the, the powerful part of that power dynamic. And so students won't always feel like they can talk about things unless we're oftentimes, unless we're bringing it up first. And there's so much writing on our evaluation as supervisors for, as, as we know, um, for years often, that students will have trainees will have a vested interest in keeping the relationship strong, which sometimes means they will not want to bring up the hard topics and they shouldn't have to. Uh, so yeah. that, that's my other hope for supervisors. I'm really glad you mentioned that because it's like you felt my energy with the next question. And what I was going to follow up with is, you know, I think something my colleagues and I like like people in my class or like, you know, I'm campus co-chair of like division 45 and something that really comes. Thank you. Something that really comes up in our like monthly, like, you know, meetings that we have or like processes spaces that we have in like both spaces is, you know, our, our role in, in this space and how at the end of the day, we are a trainee of color and how, Mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're afraid that, even if we do bring stuff up, 
we're thinking about will they light us a recommendation like they get right. to decide where we're going for like internship and like you know support us and things like that and so I think what happens you know in most of these situations is you feel really othered and then you keep quiet because you really don't, you don't, first of all, you don't have the safe space to kind of share what you want to share. And then you Mm -hmm. feel like even if you do, then it'll be like weaponized against you or held against you. So I just kind of, so I guess I want to understand, you know, students like me and like my other colleagues or like other students who are in this program, I mean, in the field Mm -hmm. of psychology, how can we cope and like advocate for ourselves in situations like that? Mm-hmm. I, such great questions, Pooja. And, you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to call in my friend and colleague, uh, Arianne Miller here, who, uh, this is really her area is, uh, self-care for graduate students. And, uh, you know, we've done a presentation on self-care for, uh, trans, queer and trans uh, graduate students of color. And I think the, the self-care that's required for people who experience oppression, uh, I I think self-care is required regardless of how you walk through the world. I think Mm -hmm. self-care is required plus if you, if you are a student who experiences oppression, because the mental and emotional consequences of having to navigate systems that were built to exclude us uh, are uh, sometimes they feel subtle. Sometimes they feel acute, uh, but in my experience, they feel cumulative. Mm-hmm. And so when I, uh, when students ask me like, well, how do I, how do I cope with that? I think first is just to know that like, this is not a coincidence, <laughs> you know, like the, the thing that you are experiencing that you're describing, Pooja, you know, that should I stay quiet? Should I uh, just, you know, try to put my nose to the ground and, and move forward? Like that is an experience that it doesn't, it, it comes from somewhere and it didn't start with you. And I think that's the first thing to, to hopefully help kind of like normalize uh, for students of color that, uh, you know, this is, this is a systemic issue uh, that, that affects you. It affects people individually, but it's, it's a systemic problem. Uh, and you know, my my next hope would be that uh, students would find their communities, their people, whether or not they're in their program or on their campus. Uh, and that's where I think as a field, we could be doing a lot. There are lots of things we could be doing better. I think particularly, you know, when I think about my work uh, with the Asian American Psychological Association, that, uh, you know, I think we could be doing better about helping to, um, to hold up the people who feel like they're looking for us, but they don't know how to find us yet. They don't know how to make the connection yet. And so that feels like kind of like a within group comment, you know, that, that, um, we could be doing more there. And, uh, so that even if people are isolated on their campus or in their program, that they're not isolated in the profession. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that those are like two, there are lots of other things we could talk about, but those are two big things for me. It's like, this is happening for a reason that didn't start with you. And let's help find a community that can help hold you up when you need that. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
No, I, I really appreciate those tips just with lived experiences that navigating mm-hmm. these nuances and also, you know, from like people I go to school with or like, you know, like my broader community, like through APA that like I collaborate with it. And I feel like we don't have enough of these conversations and that could be like a whole podcast series on its own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, I really appreciate you sharing that perspective because even with my clients, I'm always like, you need to be taking care of just who you are, like, you know, every day of your life. But I mm-hmm. never thought of it like what you just said today, where it's like, hey, if your identities intersect in like these so many different ways, it's like self-care plus. And I I, I really resonate with that perspective. And, yeah. you know, it, it got me thinking of I mean, we have to take like a social, cultural, like elective class in the PhD program. And I'm currently Mm -hmm. taking a class on disability. And Mm. something that we spoke about in our class yesterday was, you know, like people who are like um, like, uh, professionals and students who are like neurodivergent or like who do Mm -hmm. live with disabilities, how that also comes into the power play in these spaces. and. The nuances that come with that so it made me think of that yes there's so so much more work to do uh and i think part of what i'm taking from what you're saying puja is that like it's it is a required uh practice for us to um stay humble and you know like no matter how much the field or the magical piece of paper, uh, two magical pieces of paper, you know, one that says that you're a doctor. And then the second one that says that you can practice independently, that, uh, that we, we stay the course, you know, we stay the course yeah. of like, knowing that I'm going to make mistakes. What mistakes am I making? How can I do this better? And I can just imagine how much better our field would be when we can admit that we're not great at some of this. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, really important to maintain that cultural humility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that actually admitting that is makes us better psychologists. Yes, Yes. you know, I think the idea that like uh, we are always right because we're we have so many years of experience or that we have X amount of authority is like that is feels like a very uh, individualistic, achievement-oriented, uh, you know, Eurocentrically focused kind of way of being. Um, so, you know, I when we talk about like something like authenticity, to me, authenticity is like, yeah, let's let's step into that really uncomfortable space where we know we didn't get it right mm-hmm. and get used to it because it it happens whether or not we're acknowledging it. It's but the, for me, the cultural responsiveness is like, can I, can I um, be with that experience and not let it limit me? Can I, can I be with it and and move beyond it, not keep, not let it keep me stuck? And I think that's where a lot of people get stuck is when we know we messed up, and then we just try to avoid it because it's too uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, wise words. Thank you, Kai Bigan. Um, and also. Uh, just to as an uh, added to that, I'm I'm wondering what do you think are you know what steps should be taken in order for us to have this uh, cross racial ethnic 
solidarity, uh, you know, and also to be how to how can we be better accomplices with, mm-hmm. you know, uh, various racial, ethnic uh, and any marginalized communities. Mm hmm. Uh, I'm going to uh, give credit to Karen Suyamoto for a couple of different reasons. One, she's been the model for me and I suspect for others uh, for the ideas about uh, what leadership can look like if it's not tied to pedigree. And uh, so I want to give Karen uh, credit for that. Uh, and I also want to give Karen credit for her work on allyship research, uh, which I think has inspired my own. Uh, I think in practice, a lot of the things that I've talked about apply to cross-racial allyship mm-hmm, and solidarity. Mm-hmm. You know, that um, it's probably one of the first social justice practices that I really became familiar with is like, how do I move on when I make a mistake that I didn't mean to make? but it impacted someone. I can name easily five of the most cringeworthy examples of my own missteps over the last, you know, uh, 20-ish years doing social justice work. And it almost hits, it hits almost the same as it did the day that I made it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I think part of really effective cross-racial work is, especially when we are in positions of power, as we are within cross-racial work, or we might be within cross-racial work, especially if it's intersectional, uh, that we that we, you know, can own our impact. And you know, I think uh, doing queer and trans uh, social justice work among people of color has inevitably been cross-racial, and it's important. It has been important for me to acknowledge that you know the experiences of my black and trans siblings is not the same as mine as an Asian American Filipinx person. Uh, or that, you know, uh, for uh, trans femmes and trans women of color, they are not the same experiences as mine as a trans mask non-binary person of color. And so I think being able to hold all of those different multiple truths at once you know, different kinds of power dynamics are happening at the same time as we are doing work together uh, and, and, and creating a process with someone else where we can talk about how are we doing this right and where could we be doing it better and how can I be doing it better? Um, I think those, those are some of the things that, that cross-racial social justice work has, has taught me. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, definitely resonate with a lot of what you shared and, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we're also just trying to, like, something that I also try to bring about, like, Dr. Donna and I and the work that we're doing through the task force or, you know, even in my position at school and, like, leadership positions there, like, how do we kind of address these things and, Mm -hmm. you know, we, you need in order to get to a place of healing, you have to cross that on like feelings of like feeling uncomfortable and things like that. So I Mm -hmm. feel like you really reminded us today how those feelings of discomfort can just look in so many different areas in academia, right. From like teaching to research to clinical supervision Mm -hmm. and, you know, social justice as leaders. And 
as, a, as I am a student, I always like asking my guests this one last question. Um, so in thinking about what you have told your younger self when you began your journey as a psychologist, we'd like to know what words of wisdom do you have for graduate students currently in academia, graduate students getting into academia and BIPOC students getting into leadership? Anything you wish you had told your younger self back then that you can tell us now? Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> um, my younger self. I think I'd want my younger self to know that however I'm thinking and feeling, you know, especially if it's related to feeling like outside of something or or not, that um, that not only is that there for a reason, but also that I'm not the only one. And and as soon as I can to find people who are experiencing something similar because that's really where I felt like I found the most um, fulfillment and meaning, especially in the, in the, uh, when I was a graduate student specifically. And, uh, and I think if I had known that what I had to say was important, I think that would have helped too. I think I had an inkling of that. I just didn't know like what form it would take, you know, X amount of years later. And, uh, and that like just staying true to my own experience as a person of color and as a queer and trans person of color was going to be the most important, no matter what, uh, you know, all the thoughts, all the feelings, all the hard experiences, all the good ones, uh, that, the only thing that I could really do at the end of the day is stay true to myself and my, and my family and my community. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for making time and for being here today. I, I wish we didn't have to end because this was amazing <laughs> and we could, we could talk Thanks. all day, but thank you so much. It was such an honor to have you here today with us. And I know that um, Lou and Atijini are here in spirit. So absolutely, absolutely. Oh, there's six and seven um, for absolutely. Uh, so <laughs> so happy to be with you both, and I can't wait to see you in person whenever yes. we get to make that yes. happen. Yes, can't Bye wait. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more information about today's guests and their social media links, you can click on the description links of the episode. Pooja Mami Dana and Dr. Donna Demanarik host this podcast. Our podcast team includes our podcast interns, Alexis Rios from the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, and Petra Zadroga from Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts. We also want to acknowledge our production team, David DeVito and Rachel Sheffer. If you would like to know more about us or to watch video clips of this interview, then follow us on Instagram at APADiv45 underscore Presidential Task Force, on Twitter at APADiv45 underscore Coakley, or on YouTube and Facebook at Dr. Kevin Coakley. APA Division 45 Presidential Task Force. Strength and solidarity. The strength and solidarity.